All right. Um, anybody have a bad sleep last night? A few people? Yeah, okay. Put me in that club. I need your help today. Uh, I was having a bad sleep all night long. You know when you're aware that you're having a bad sleep? That's the worst, isn't it? It doesn't feel like you're sleeping. And finally, I'm laying awake, and I think, my alarm's got to be going off soon. You know that, that feeling? I usually get up at 5 on Sundays, and I was waiting, and the alarm wasn't making a noise yet. And so I thought, okay, I'll just check my phone. And it was 3.50. And uh, so I went to the washroom, did not fall back asleep. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to get into it in just a moment. If you go onto the wild world of the internet, uh, memes are very popular. People use them for humor and all kinds of things. If you were to search memes about God, um, one of the first images that comes up is this. Uh, have you seen that? This is what our world presently likes to think God might be like. And I think it raises a few of the very real human questions, whether Christian or not, that many of us experience. One of them being, is, is this what God's really like? I mean, he looks particularly upset, angry, unhappy, laser beam eyes, ready to smite us with his mighty smiter. Um, is that what God's really like? No. I think people ask, what does God feel about me? What does God feel about People, these are, I think, fairly sincere, common questions that us as humans have. One of the things that I think helps us, if you're a follower of Jesus or you find yourself curiously exploring along the way, even in the first few pages of Scripture, we begin discovering that God clarifies for us immediately what his heart towards humanity is like. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the very first book, very first chapter, Genesis chapter one. We're gonna flip through just a few of the first pages to help address a little bit of this idea of what is God actually like? How does he feel about me? How does he feel about people? And what in the world is he actually doing? If you look in Genesis chapter one, if you're familiar with the story, it begins with these beautiful poetic words, in the beginning God created. And then as you move down, listen to verse 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 4. God saw that the light was good. God saw that the light was good. In the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was originally written in, the word for good there is the word tov. Can everybody say tov? This is how you're helping me. Tov. Yeah, thank you. I almost fell asleep there when you woke me up. Tov. Uh, guess what it means? Good, you got it. <laughs> but a, a little bit beneath that, or beneath the surface of good, there's this idea that it's excellent, whatever is tov is excellent for human flourishing. It's excellent for human flourishing. Now, if you are familiar with the creation story in the book of Genesis, what do we discover happening? God creates something, and he sees that it is tov. And then he creates something else and he sees that it is Tove. And how many Toves do you think appear in the creation account? Any wild guesses out there? You didn't even count, but you already knew. It's God's favorite number, seven. Now, what is a little bit interesting is if you're following the appearances of the Toves, we find it right away on the first day of creation, which would be a Sunday. Day two, no Tove. Day three, two Toves. It's kind of like they make up for the lack of Toves on Monday. Why is there no Tove? Some scholars suggest even God doesn't like Mondays. 
He made Mondays like, let's get on to Tuesday here. Tove, tove, we're good. Why, and there's lots of speculation as to why there may not be a, a tove or a declaration of goodness over Monday. Some scholars or academics would suggest that uh, out of all of the days of creation and acts of creation, day two has uh, the least discernible goodness directly benefiting humans. And therefore might have been uh, absented from day two to help punctuate the importance of tov in God's creation. God is creating a world that is full of tov. Why? For human flourishing. Now, uh, flip over with me to chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Again, we're, what is God like? What's his heart for me like? How does he feel about me? How does he feel about people? Listen, in, in the world he is creating, let's start in verse 8. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Everybody say Eden. Eden. And there he put the man he had formed, verse 9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Isn't that interesting commentary that's included in the creation story? There are trees in the midst of this garden that God has created, and what is standing out about them? They're pleasing to the eye, and they're good for food. Tov for food. Why is God doing that? This is a gift of enjoyment that God is offering humanity. In his complete and perfect creation, God offers experiences of delight. And how else do we know it? What is this place called? What's the garden called? Eden, which means delight or pleasure. So what's God like? What's his heart towards you like? What's God's heart towards people like? Well, so far, he's creating a world that's full of tov, goodness, setting humanity up with the opportunity to flourish. He's putting things in and around them for the sake of their enjoyment with him at the very center. In Genesis 1, verse 28, if you flip backwards, you'll find after God creates humans, it says this, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God creates people, and what does he do to them immediately? Withhold his tove? No, he blesses them. Now, I want you to just think for a moment. They're already existing in a very complete, wonderful creation. There wasn't lack, but he adds blessing to their lives. The word blessed there is the Hebrew word barak. And God blesses his people. This idea of blessing in the ancient world, in Israel's story, has this idea of God's goodness being offered, revealing himself to them, giving things that help humanity to flourish. Blessing is connected to flourishing. Blessing is connected to goodness. Blessing is connected to life. So God blesses people, and then he says to them a command, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So the question we should ask here is, where does God want his blessing to go? Everywhere. So his heart is to bless people and for them to fill the earth and carry and multiply his blessing all around the world. God has always had a whole world heart. God has always had a heart for everyone. And with the first humans, he gestures in this way by blessing them. 
I want you to notice something. God blesses them and commissions them to fill the earth. And this is occurring before the fall of mankind. Creation was not needy. I want you to think about this for a moment. Creation was not needy. Blessing is not limited to needs or meeting needs. Blessing is connected to the gift and expression of God's goodness towards humanity. Everyone, everywhere. Now, I hope you're noticing God has a heart of good. God is gifting enjoyment to humanity. He is blessing humanity and if you're familiar with the Genesis story, we know that humanity chooses a path of independence and rebellion. And it's told in the story of Genesis chapter 3 and then later on in chapter 11 in two ways. In chapter 3, humanity circles themselves around a tree that God warned them about. And what does it say as they're observing that tree? They noticed that they thought the fruit appeared good to eat. In the first days of creation, who is seeing and declaring good? God, he has the authority to define good, doesn't he? In the act of human independence, what is one of the features of it? Humanity begins to think, actually, I think I could define what's good. And they look at the tree God warned them of and thought, no, that is good. And they decided to take of that tree. In chapter 11, humanity, this is long after the fall, Humanity is unraveling in all kinds of ways. Remember, God's commission to humanity was to be blessed and fill the earth. And in chapter 11, what does humanity try to do? The opposite of that. Instead of filling the earth, they stay in one place. Instead of distributing God's blessing, they keep and they hoard and they build up a tower towards the heavens to make God's name famous? No, to try to build a name for themselves. They rebel against God's initiative and plan for humanity. Humanity was intended to carry his blessing around the world, and humanity says, no, 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 no. We'd like to build a name for ourselves. In fact, we'll build a monument to ourselves. We'll not go, we'll stay. We'll not bless, we'll keep. So, I mean, this is pretty, after a great start in Genesis, it, it, it seems that God's plans have fallen off the rails. Does this stop him from desiring to bless all people everywhere? Some of us might think so think so. I mean, wouldn't you be a little fed up with us people? Uh, I imagine I would be. In Genesis chapter 12, why don't you flip over there. This is following the story of Babel. We approach this text asking, has God given up on his plans or is he still carrying on? In verse 1 it says this, the Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And I want you to listen now to these words from God to Abraham. I want you to listen to words of promise that live in here. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Now, uh, some of us might feel a little uncomfortable with that, like, oh, oh God, you don't have to do that. Um, that, that line... In, it appears in there for many reasons, but one of them is in the previous story, who's trying to make their name great? Humanity's trying to do it on their own. God has image bearers that he cares deeply about, and if anybody's going to make any person's name great, it's God's decision, not our own. And this is offered in contrast to that. He carries on with his promises here, and you will 
be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him. Has God given up on his desire and his intention to bless all people? No, we discover that as things appear to be unraveling with the fall of humanity, with them exercising independence, with them rebelling against his purposes, God does not give up. He's determined to find ways to bless his people so that they may carry his blessing around his world. This introduces to us a significant theme that lives cover to cover in scripture. That the people of God are blessed to be a blessing. We're not blessed to be like the people who built Babel, to sort of hoard and keep and stay. We're blessed to be a conduit of blessing. Now, as we consider the story of Abraham, I continue to be fascinated at God's selection of Abraham. No one on earth was walking in a righteous way. You and I have grown up in a world, if you grew up in the church, where we learned from a young age how to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, right? And then left foot, right foot, all that kind of stuff. And we think, Abraham's quite the hero, and he became a hero. But he was not a self-made hero. God wasn't scanning the earth looking for, okay, who's impressing me the most? Who deserves my blessing? Abraham was just as pagan as the rest of the world. And that's a bit of an uncomfortable thought at times for us to consider. He was unrighteous. He was pagan. He was worshiping idols, family idols, idols attached to the land that he felt he belonged to. He did unrighteous things. Translation, he did a lot of bad stuff. And God is looking for someone to form a relationship with in covenant so that he can bless multiply, and cause his blessing to reach around the world. Abraham was undeserving of this blessing. And guess what? So are we. Do you ever have hard times and wonder, why is this, this is unfair, why is this happening to me? And we may not deliberately think it this way, but somewhere beneath that thought can live this idea that, but I, I'm a good person. I do good things. I know rotten people that have good things happen to them. Why, when I'm a good person, is this unfortunate stuff happening to me? Guess what? If I've been blessed at all, if you've been blessed at all, it's not a reflection at all of any kind of goodness in you or me. It's totally a reflection of the goodness of God. His heart of grace towards humanity. Abraham was undeserving. So are you and I. And guess what? So are all the people that you and I are called to bless. Have you ever had an opportunity to be generous to somebody? And then through the, through the course of your thinking, you're like, ah, I'm not so sure that they're totally deserving of this. I mean, you might not think that too cognitively, but there's sort of this thought that like, I'm uncomfortable, they might squander this somehow. And I understand that there are stewardship things that must be considered, but not the issue of goodness or who is deserving, because God sets the standard for blessing. He finds Abraham who is undeserving, somehow he found you and me, 
And his intention is to bless our lives so that through us, other undeserving people can be blessed too. The movement of God's blessing to you and through you does not depend upon your worthiness or the worthiness of others. It depends entirely upon the graciousness and the tove of God. Okay, are we helping? Is this helping? We're trying to understand what God's like. What's his heart like towards humanity? How does he feel about you? God's heart is to bless us. I want to pivot from there way into the New Testament. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to build on this idea of blessed to be a blessing. Your life and my life is blessed by God. Blessing can include material things, but it's not limited to material things. You heard Pastor Lauren speak a blessing from the book of Numbers. Knowing the Lord, having his face shine upon us, the warmth of being in relationship with him and with one another are rich, rich blessings of God. None of us could ever earn that, but he favors us in this way. You and I are blessed to be a blessing. There is, of course, a material reality to the blessing of God. We see it in the New Testament. There's a word that appears in the Greek often as it's describing the activity of the church, and it's, the word is koinonia. A lot of times we translate that to the word fellowship, but the better translation of that word might be sharing. And that does mean relational sharing, but there's all kinds of sharing that occurs. Last week, if you were with us, I talked a little bit from Acts chapter 4 of the kind of koinonia or sharing that was occurring in the early church. Listen to how Paul is instructing Timothy, a young pastor, to bring leadership in his church. In chapter 6, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. That's pretty good. Have you ever been around a nauseatingly egotistical wealthy person? This is nice. Paul's on a good track here. He's like, hey, if people are rich, tell them to cool down. Settle your ego down. Be, you know, don't be annoying. And then he carries on. Don't uh, com- command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In this text, we discover there are four clear commands that Paul is instructing Timothy to give those who are rich in this present world. Here are the four commands. Number one, do not put your hope in wealth. Number two, Put your hope in God. Number three, do good and be rich in good deeds. Number four, be generous and willing to share. How many of you think this is a fair ask for the wealthy people in the world? I know some of you are like, yeah, I think so. And then others are like, I think this is a trick question. (laughs) It begs us to ask the second question then. Who are the rich in this present world? And that's those of you who are like, I think this might be a trick question. You're like, I was afraid you were going to ask that. Who are the rich in this present world? Um, Let me just point something out to you. Ever since this text in Timothy was included in the canon of Scripture, every normal Christian who has heard this text or read this text, when it says, command those who are rich in the present, present world, do you know who they think about? Somebody who has just at least a little more than them. 
Who are the rich in this world? It's easy. All of us can spot the rich. It's not me. It's the person who has just a little more than me, right? And then when we get a little more, then it's like, well, okay, I'm not yet rich, but they seem to be, so they are. Very few of us like to think that, well, we're actually wealthy. But when you consider the global reality we live in, let me offer some sobering thoughts to you right now. A teenager in our church who works 10 hours a week will be in the top 30% of the wealthiest people on the planet. A teenager working 10 hours a week, top 30%. The average college student, you can just do a bit of research online and find this information yourself. Average college student right now in North America is in the top 15% of world wealth. When I was in college, I did not feel that. A very modest full-time wage here in BC, very modest full-time wage, puts you in the top 5% of world wealth right now. Now, if you happen to be married and you have dual full-time minimum wage incomes, so you and your partner are both making minimum wage, uh, and let's also throw in that you don't own a home, you are now in the top 1.5% of world wealth right now now. So what did Paul say? Command those who are rich in this present world. Who might that be in this room? Should we look at those four commands again? I think it's speaking to us. Can everybody say me? God's word is speaking to us today. Here are the four commands to you and to me. Do not put your hope in wealth. You pay attention to the stocks, investments. You can have some good days and good weeks, and you feel it. And you have some bad days or bad weeks, and you feel it. It sort of tells us where our hopes sometimes lie. It's an uncomfortable thing when there's losses that are felt, aren't they? But they sometimes reveal where our hope might be living. Do not put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. Do good. Be wealthy in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. So the third question, I suppose, would be, now that we know who this is speaking to, are you, am I, willing to share? And if I can be perfectly upfront with everybody, I think it's worth us evaluating annually. Am I willing to share again this year? Or this year, am I willing to share in a way that reflects my faith being stretched, that I'm growing in my trust of God. Are you and I willing to share? I was thinking this morning about, um, you know how we have these envelopes for donations? They're in the chairs in front of you here. We have them at the little giving boxes in the back of uh, the main floor and upstairs. When I was a kid, um, it was very clear on there, tithes and offerings. And there was, that was the phrase. Did anybody else grow up in a world where the phrase was tithes and offerings? And we don't use that language as often anymore, but the reality is that language is extremely biblical. It's attached to our faith history. Tithes are a tenth of one's gross income that belongs to God. So it's given to our place of worship as part of our worship to God. Offerings, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We know that the early church practiced giving offerings to God as well. When people of God 
brought an offering to God, what they did not do was take of their tithes and then recategorize it as now offering. They didn't say, I'm going to take my part of my tithe here and now it's for this generous act or it's now for missions instead. They were committed to their tithe and then they had other things that God called on them to offer to him as offerings over and above, separate of the tithe gift itself to the worship assembly. There were offerings that were also given unto God. And so when we talk in the life of our church, uh, we give regularly to the general fund of this church. For many people, that's the practice of a tithe. And then there's times that we give to missions or to other important priorities. Do we grab from the tithes to put it in the offerings? No, that's because of the old language of the church. There are tithes and offerings. It's not sort of all the same. On your way in today, I hope each of you in your household received one copy each of our missions booklet for 2024. If you have it, grab it right now. On the front, as Pastor Lauren referred to already, it says, blessed to, to be a blessing. I want you to take this home with you this week. Keep it somewhere near your Bible or somewhere where you're, you'll see it from time to time. This profiles projects and partnerships that we're endeavoring to take on in the name of missions for the advancement of God's good work through Jesus Christ around the world. Why do we care about this? Because God has richly blessed us, and we have the opportunity to continue to help advance his blessing around the world. And you will have opportunity this year to flip through here, look at some of our mission partnerships, and pray for them. Some of you may find a time where God puts something on your heart. You think, oh, I want to support this work. There are times that people come into a provision of God that they weren't expecting. We've experienced that. Many people in our church have experienced that. And at times they think, well, I'm waiting until God highlights where or what I should give that to. And for some of us, it's sometimes as we're considering a missions opportunity or need, we think, yeah, Lord, I think you're asking me to direct these additional gifts or funds towards that. You can flip through this. Um, you can try reading it right now if you want to give that a go, but I'm going to keep talking anyways. There's a nice picture of Laura and I in the front. You can cut this out and put it on your fridge and say hi to us every morning if you want. The very back page, we outline our mission's goal and plan for this year. We've increased our mission's objective this year to $80,000. Many people, and I want to thank the church family for those who give. Some of you gave one time or a few times last year. You came behind one of our projects in a particular way. Thank you so much. Many people joined in giving missions and towards missions in a more regular way last year. And I want to ask and encourage many others, if you haven't yet begun considering the priority of our call to be blessed, to be a blessing, would you jump on board with us as a church family, giving regularly to missions? Can I encourage you to think about it monthly? Let me just say, and you can read through the booklet and understand some more about our projects and our priorities and what's being accomplished. But if you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, it's probably 1.5 Starbucks drinks. You are part of advancing God's work in Guatemala right now and next month. We have our ladies missions team is on their way back home Next month, our men's team heads to Guatemala. Guatemala is the most impoverished Central American nation, and we have a great opportunity to develop relationship and to be and bring blessing to Guatemala. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you're part of sending relief each month to places like 
Israel right now or the Ukraine right now. You're part of sending food to places that have been struck with disaster. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you are part of sheltering an AIDS orphan in Africa this month and next month and all through the year. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you're part of rescuing a young girl from sex slavery in Romania. And you're part of helping her to experience dignity and restoration and receiving education. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you're part of helping rescue refugee families in Southeast Asia right now. You're part of helping purchasing Bibles for them, helping equip people that come alongside them to disciple them as first-time followers of Christ. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you're part of presenting the gospel and presenting it and extending it and advancing it in places like India right now where people are oppressed under the burden of the caste system. And into that world comes the message of Jesus saying, there is no casteism. Genesis 1:27. all people have been created in God's image. You're valued, you matter, you belong. I think that's worthwhile. Wouldn't you love to bless some people there too. If you begin giving even $10 a month to missions, you're part of helping our church family endeavor to bring blessing to everyone everywhere as God gives us capacity and ability again this year. I want to commend this church family for your generosity, for your sharing, your faithfulness, and your consistency. From time to time, I refer to our vision booklet. We leave these lying around the church. Sometimes it looks like a mess, but that's so that you think, oh, I should clean that up. Maybe I'll keep this and take this home. You may. In our, missions, or in our vision booklet here, we outline what we feel God's call, and this time is for our church. Our mission statement, four things we feel everyone in our church is called to, and we describe seven core biblical values of our church, and one of them is generosity. And friends, I want to just say, the value of generosity is not something that we sort of aspire to. It's, it's not something that we think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to become generous one day? If you're part of this church, you're part of a church that has a culture of generosity. People in this church don't do this out of obligation. They love to give time and help and hard work and care and phone calls and bring flowers to those in need. People in this church love being generous with the resources that God gives them. And we invite you all to participate in that. I want to challenge you this week. I've shared this before, but we've had so many new people. I might as well say this again. Uh, some of you may have read back in the day they would post um, bulletin bloopers. Does everybody remember what a bulletin is? Okay, kids, before COVID, every Sunday we gave everybody paper. And it had all the uh, church information on it, but most of us didn't read it anyways. But we felt obliged to have to do it. It was called the church bulletin. And uh, from time to time, a pastor or a staff member would make an error in the bulletin, and then people would phone each other. Uh, before the internet, they would fax the bulletin bloopers around. Then came the internet. It became much easier to read the bulletin bloopers. One, person, one pastor put this in the bulletin. This year, I've upped my missions giving. Up yours. <laughs> I want to challenge you this week. To consider the importance, the value, and the opportunity in missions. And I want to call you to just a few practical things to consider this week. If the idea of being blessed to be a blessing is a new thing for you. If this is something you've heard and believed and you've loved your whole life. 
I want to call you to try three things this week. Number one, I want you to think about how you can bless God this week. This is very important. Can everybody say very important? It's very important for you and I to learn that God is worthy of our blessing. Scripture talks about humans, his worshipers, blessing God. Now, it can be a funny thought for some of us as we think, well, God has no needs. Well, no, he doesn't. Of course, he has no needs. But we don't bless just when there are needs. We bless because we're called to be a blessing. So find a way to bless God. Two, this week, would you try to bless someone in need? You're going to notice somebody who's struggling or facing something challenging or difficult. Find a way to bless them. Three, and this may be a harder practice for some of us, but try it. Bless someone who's not in need. Some of us sort of need to dig out that weird root that got into our heart that's like, I'm not going to bless people that have more than me. They don't need that. I need that. <laughs> bless. Like, are you telling me at Christmas time you don't offer kindness to your neighbors or you only do to the neighbors who you think have less than you? We just bless people because it's what we're called to do. This last week was Valentine's Day, and I didn't know this was going on. I found out about it after Valentine's I, I knew about Valentine's Day. I'm sorry. I realize how that sounds. You're like, is Laura okay? Is she? I did know about Valentine's Day. But what I'm about to tell you, I did not know was occurring until after the fact. Our daughter Mirabelle uh, made a Valentine's card. She's nine years old for our neighbors. And nobody told her to do this. Um, our neighbors are, are a lovely retired couple. Um, their life is very comfortable for them. And Mira wrote this beautiful little Valentine's card for them, and she put $5 in the card. <laughs> and she walked over and delivered it to them. And a couple days later, the neighbor came by to talk to me, and he, he just said, like your kids, are, thank you. And you know what? They were blessed by that. Did they need Mira's $5? Not at all. But I just loved what I saw in Mira's little heart. She's nine years old. She has no job except wiggling her teeth out to get money. <laughs> and she gets five bucks for a tooth and she's running out. Five bucks is a significant part of her life savings. It's a massive percentage of her money. And I'd like to actually interview her sometime and say, didn't you think about, like, when are you getting the next five bucks? Didn't you think about how little you have left now that, didn't you think about all the other things you could have done with that five bucks? And I don't think she did. And I don't think we're supposed to have to worry about that either. I think what she thought about is, I'm thankful for my neighbors. I bet they'd like five bucks. <laughs> Blessed to be a blessing. Now, let me just add an amendment to these three things here. Some of you are like, okay, I'm going to do this. And this ends up happening in churches, so I'm going to just handle it head on. Some people are like, okay, God, show me somebody to bless. Well, who can you all see right now? The pastors. <laughs> We're off limits, okay? Um, please find other people. We're so thankful. We feel so blessed by you, but um, don't bless us. Bless others, okay? Clear? Good. Okay. Now, let's circle back to where we began. We're going to land the plane right now. So what is God like? What's his heart like? 
towards you? How does he feel about you? How does he feel about people? Um, when you Google memes about God, here's another one that's one of the first ones to come up. I think it's hilarious. Don't make me come down there. <laughs> this is one of the human ideas of what God might be like. This angry, Coptic-looking, bearded fellow in the sky with angry eyes saying, don't make me come down there like some sort of angry parent. Now, the irony is he did come down here. And it was the best thing that ever happened to humanity because God came in Jesus Christ as blessing personified so that all people everywhere could experience the blessing of knowing him and the blessing that's intended to fill this earth. The blessing of God made manifest through Jesus is demonstrated, friends, so powerfully through the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, it says in scripture, bless those who curse you. It also says in scripture that Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. God comes to earth, is horribly mistreated by humanity, by political powers, by religious powers, even by disciples. You might as well throw you and I into the mix as well. He's mistreated. And we hang him on a tree and he is cursed. And what does Jesus do? He blesses those who curse him. From a tree, he gives his life. I was reading devotionally this week. In the, I think it's in Luke's account, where from the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are. And it got me in a way it hasn't before. I just thought, okay, wait a second. Who is Jesus referring to there? Father, forgive them. Who, who is he referring to? Was there anyone anywhere around that scene who was sort of good and innocent in some way? You know, in my mind, it's as if I thought, you know, he was probably sort of saying, God, forgive those sort of innocent bystanders who really, they don't get what's going on right now. Why would I think that? Because those ones feel a little more deserving of forgiveness, right? What is the heart of the Father through Jesus Christ being expressed to humanity in that moment? Who is he thinking of? He's thinking of the Jewish religious leaders that collaborated with political powers of Rome to lie and heap false accusations against God himself and pin them to a tree. And he's looking at religious leaders, he's looking at political powers, he's conscious of disciples who have now deserted, deserted him, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they, forgive those ones who don't deserve it. Wow. At the cross, God takes upon himself the curse all of us are deserving of and then gives all of us the forgiveness that none of us are deserving of. Wow, that's generosity, that's grace, that's tov, that's blessing. Would you stand with me now and let's worship our King together in response.
As we conclude today, I want to call those who are on our prayer ministry team today to come forward and make themselves available right away. Perhaps you've come today and there's just something that's nagging in your soul. It's this thing, this thought that you can't seem to get out of your head and it's bothering you. Maybe there's a concern for a family member, a loved one. Don't leave without having somebody pray with you. It's not that the church building is magical somehow and it makes prayers work in an extra way. It's not that. But we're a family, and we need you, and you need us. And there is something that strengthens us and encourages us when we pray together. I want to pray for all of us as we go today. Father, I thank you for every person here. And first of all, we thank you for your blessings. The greatest of all made known to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you for all the other blessings that have come to our lives. And would you make us into conduits of your blessing? Would you stir up generosity in a joyful, life-giving way? May we have the grace and the excitement and the delight and the thrill of bringing your tove to our world. Now, as we go into your mission field, on your mission, we declare again our dependence upon you. We need you the anointing of your spirit, we need each other. God, it's our heart's desire to see neighbors, co-workers, classmates, friends who don't know you yet discover the love and truth of Jesus. We offer ourselves as people as we feel, would you use us to bring your blessing into the everyday stuff of life here in the Comox Valley. Bless each person in a fresh, wonderful way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, hey, we didn't fall asleep. At least I didn't, so that's okay. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, a wonderful afternoon. Bless somebody at least with a warm smile before you leave, okay? Turn around, introduce yourself to somebody you don't recognize. Have a wonderful week.